0: Hello, this is Ian Wolfe, producer of Diffusion Science Radio. You can now support Diffusion through the Patreon support page at patreon.com diffusionradio. Send me a message about the supporter awards you'd like to receive. Or make a donation directly with the PayPal button or click on an Amazon affiliate link at www.diffusionradio.com. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, eating for long life. But first up, here's the news. Solar power to the max. The good news is that a new solar cell configuration developed by Martin Green and Mark Kiva at the Australian Centre for Advanced Photovoltaics at the University of New South Wales has pushed sunlight to electricity conversion efficiency to 34.5%, establishing a new world record for unfocused sunlight. The theoretical limit for such a four-junction device is thought to be 53%, which puts the University of New South Wales result two thirds of the way there. The solar module uses a 28 square centimetre four junction mini module embedded in a prism. It extracts energy by splitting the incoming rays into four bands of different wavelengths using a hybrid four junction receiver to convert the light into electricity from each beam of sunlight. The module combines a silicon cell on one face of a glass prism with a triple junction solar cell on another face. The infrared light is directed to the silicon cell. The rest goes through to the triple junction cell. The triple junction cell targets different bands of frequencies of sunlight using a combination of three layers, indium gallium phosphide, indium gallium arsenide, and germanium. As sunlight passes through each layer, energy is extracted by each junction at its most efficient wavelength, while the unused part of the light passes through to the next layer, and so on. The latest University of New South Wales result was confirmed by the US National Renewable Energy Laboratory as almost 44% better than the previous record, made by Alta Devices of the USA, who reached 24% efficiency but over a larger surface area of 800 square centimetres. The University of New South Wales team previously set a world record in 2014 achieving an electricity conversion rate of over 40% by using mirrors to concentrate the light, a technique known as concentrator photovoltaics, and then in the same way splitting out various wavelengths. This new result however was achieved using normal sunlight with no concentrators, making it possible to use on rooftops. The spectrum splitting approach is perfect for solar towers, like those being developed by Australia's RayGen Resources which uses mirrors to concentrate sunlight which is then converted directly into electricity. RayGen has been using a two kilowatt photovoltaic ultra module about the area of a business card using the concentrator photovoltaic technology from the University of New South Wales. Due to the concentrating mirrors These modules intersect over a thousand times more sunlight. And due to the split beam design, convert that twice as efficiently as the normal photovoltaic panels you find on roofs. Just two of these small modules can make enough power to run a home. However, Ragin gets a field of mirrors to focus sunlight onto the modules to generate large amounts of power at 40% efficiency. The theoretical maximum of concentrated solar modules is 86% so there's still room to grow. The University of New South Wales research is supported by a $1.4 million grant from the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, ARENA. Raygen's concentrated sunlight power tower generators are also supported by the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. The bad news is that the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, ARENA, is due for the chop. Arena currently has a $1.3 billion budget, which the Liberal National Party promised to cut completely should they win the election. The Labour Party, if it wins the election, have promised they will cut the Arena budget by a billion dollars, leaving it with just $300 million, which can only be used for large solar thermal power stations. The cuts would see the University of New South Wales Solar Research funding, the Ray Gen Solar Tower funding, along with other renewable research, such as solar-powered aluminium smelting, all eliminated. Martin Green and his team would have to seek refuge in a country like the US, which would be happy to continue to fund research into renewable energy. Professor Green released a report showing that the Australian solar cell research has delivered more than $8 billion in economic benefits to Australia in the past 10 years, and has become the world standard with sales of over $9 billion a year. With the gains in efficiency, the University of New South Wales solar cells are forecast to save $750 million in Australia's electricity generation over the next 10 years. It looks like the government's war on science will continue regardless of who wins the election. The renewable energy revolution is sweeping the world, but both the Liberal National and Labor parties seem determined that Australian world-class solar research is left in the shade.
1: But we don't want to have to deal with carp. No, we don't want to deal with carp. We've got to get rid of the carp. Because when we've dealt with this, when we've dealt with this virus, you know, Mr. Speaker, that we're going to have between 500,000 and 2 million tonnes of carp. 2 million tonnes of carp. we to have to bury the carp. We'll have to put it outside, put it in the paddocks, bury it. Put it, put it underground, probably take the, take the place a horse from or something.
0: The universe is expanding even faster than we thought. Using the Hubble Space Telescope to measure the distance to stars in 19 galaxies beyond our Milky Way galaxy, NASA and the European Space Agency have jointly announced the universe is expanding 5% to 9% faster than predicted. This finding contradicts calculations based on the Big Bang Theory based on measurements of the cosmic microwave background radiation. The new expansion rate is 73.2 kilometers per second per megaparsec. A megaparsec is 3.26 million light years. This means that the distance between cosmic objects will double in another 9.8 billion years. These measured speeds don't match the predictions for an expansion rate made using the Big Bang Theory, based on observations made by NASA's Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe or the European Space Agency's Planck Satellite. NASA's probe predicts 5% slower, and the European Space Agency satellite predicts 9% slower. It's almost as if the theory the calculations are based on is wrong. But that would be inconceivable. In 1925, Edwin Hubble observed galaxies rushing away from us and proposed that the universe is expanding. Using general relativity, astronomers calculated a steady rate of expansion and ran the story backwards to get the Big Bang, which they estimated to be 13.6 billion years ago. Further observations served to make the calculations more and more precise in the speed of expansion and the age of the universe. But then in 1998, the Hubble telescope was turned toward type 1a supernovae. They found that the supernovae were moving away faster and faster. They were accelerating away. Despite showing that therefore the universe must have been expanding at different speeds during its history, astronomers still used the Big Bang Theory to calculate the same age for the universe. It just came out to the same number, they said. Now, in 2016, The team led by Adam Rees used the Hubble Space Telescope to measure Cepheid variable stars, the same stars that gave Edwin Hubble and his colleagues the first hint of an expanding universe in 19 galaxies beyond our own Milky Way galaxy. Adam Rees shared the Nobel Prize for discovering that the expansion of the universe is accelerating. Cepheids pulse at rates that are related to their true brightness. Because we know how bright c variables are, we can work out how far away they are by measuring how bright they appear. Matching this with the redshift of the type 1a supernovae moving away, they were able to get the most accurate number for the acceleration of the expansion of the universe and see that it's bigger than predicted by working forward from the Big Bang Theory. One suggestion for the reason for the difference between prediction and measurement is that Einstein's theory of general relativity, upon which the Big Bang theory calculations rest, is a bit wrong. Another is that the invisible dark energy force summoned to explain the acceleration of the expansion of the universe has some extra properties. Or the invisible mass, the dark matter summoned to explain why the observed movement of stars and galaxies doesn't match the predictions of general relativity theory, also has some strange properties. Science says when your predictions don't match your measurements then your assumptions are wrong somewhere. It's going to be fun finding out where we were wrong. listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. At the Australian Biology of Ageing Conference held at the Coogee Life Saving Club a few weeks ago, before it was destroyed by waves last weekend, Professor David Lacuta gave a talk on mechanisms linking low-protein, high-carbohydrate diets with age-related health. I visited him at his office in the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney. I began by asking him if his findings don't go against what most people like to believe about diet and ageing.
2: Our research is focusing on something that everyone finds of great interest, and that is what sort of food should you be eating to have a long, healthy life? And our research has been focusing on the balance of macronutrients, the balance of protein, carbohydrate and fat. And the results that we've found are unequivocal and, as you said, very much the opposite to what the current views on diet are.
0: So what have you found?
2: So the the traditional way of living a longer life revolved around something called caloric restriction, which involves eating less food. This has been known for about a hundred years that if you reduce food intake by somewhere between 30 and 50 percent you can increase lifespan. Works well in animals but it doesn't work in humans because we simply can't voluntarily eat 50 percent less as the current epidemic of obesity shows. So rather than looking at reducing calorie intake or reducing energy intake we've been looking at the difference balance of protein, carbohydrate and fats and the results have been very surprising. So there's people
0: on the Adkins or paleo diet who think that they need to cut out carbohydrates entirely and concentrate on protein and fat, but that's not what you found.
2: Uh, Our results have been very convincing. Originally, the studies were done in a variety of insect models, more recently in mouse models, and we've also got observational data in humans. If you use a... um, a method called the geometric framework, you can see interactions between macronutrients and outcomes that's not possible to see with traditional methods of looking at the relationship between diet and health. Essentially it's like developing the telescope for the first time and looking at the stars. We're able to see things with a totally different viewpoint. So if we um, take animals and force them to eat one of multiple different diets varying in carbohydrates and fat and protein and energy levels, the results have been absolutely Um, the same across all different animal species from mice to ants to um, beetles to Drosophila to fruit flies. In every case the animals on the low-protein high carbohydrate diets have had the longest life and the best late-life health. In particular a more recent study looked at mice that are the first study done in mammals and again showed that low-protein high carbohydrate diets are associated with best best late-life health. So the animals on these low-protein high-carb diets had lower blood pressures, better blood sugars, better blood lipids, better um, muscle mass, and they lived substantially longer than the animals on the high protein, low carbohydrate diets. And the difference in lifespan was around about 30%, so it was a, a substantial difference in medium and maximum lifespan. Similar studies haven't been done in humans because um, humans live too long, but there have been observational studies, studies based on surveys of populations that have given us an a, uh, indication that the same thing is happening in humans. So the researchers in these studies haven't been looking at low-protein, high-carbohydrate diets, but have been looking at the opposite, high-protein, low-carbohydrate diets. And what they've found is that those high-protein, low-carbohydrate diets, as we saw in animals, are associated with shorter lifespans, with increased cardiovascular disease and increased diabetes. So it seems like there's a consistency across all species from simple animals like insects through to mammals like mice and humans, that low-protein, high-carbohydrate diets are associated with the best outcomes in terms of ageing.
0: Do you have an idea of the mechanisms involved?
2: One of the big advances in the last 10 or 20 years has been an increased understanding in how caloric restriction, which is the main intervention that's been known to increase lifespan, what the mechanisms are for the relationship between caloric restriction and ageing. And to to cut a complicated story short, there are four switches in cells that are able to pick up what you're eating and convert that into signals that either make the cells more resilient to ageing or alternatively make them more suited to reproduction. Those same switches that are turned on by caloric restriction are turned on by our low-protein, high-carbohydrate diets, but without the need to eat less and be hungry. This geometric
0: framework that you used to be able to understand what was happening... Would it be possible to explain a little bit of what that was for the listener? Uh, is that a statistical tool?
2: The geometric framework is an, a new way of looking at the interactions between diet and any health outcome, including ageing. was developed by two very important scientists here at the Charles Perkins Centre, Professor Stephen Simpson and Professor David Rabenheimer and what it involves is not just looking at the impact of one or two dietary interventions on an outcome but looking at a whole landscape of dietary interventions. So in all of these experiments, um, typically animals are kept on one of twenty or thirty different diets for their lifespan and it's only by looking at the whole range of different diets across different energy levels, across different ratios of macronutrients can you see what the real relationship is between diet and an outcome such as lifespan. So the geometric framework is really revolutionized and changed the way that we look at the interactions between diet and health outcomes. The traditional way is just to take one thing like um, protein and put an- animals on a high protein or a low protein diet and say everything is due to the changes in protein but you can't do that. If you change the amount of protein in the diet you're changing the ratio of protein to carbohydrate, protein to fat and you're changing the amount of carbohydrate and fat that uh, the animals or the humans are eating. You really need to look at how all of those things are interacting The geometric framework really provides the first way and the best way of looking at how all of the dietary components interact with health outcomes such as ageing.
0: When you say carbohydrates, are you differing between complex and simple?
2: In our experiments in mice, the animals were on primarily complex carbohydrates rather than simple sugars, although they did get a small component of sucrose, which is a simple sugar. We're currently doing experiments at the moment to disentangle that a little further to find out whether the the quality of the carbohydrates makes any difference whether the ratio of complex carbohydrates to simple carbohydrates has an impact on health in particular we're looking at indicators of diabetes such as blood insulin blood glucose and glucose tolerance
0: the diet you found what's the proportion of protein to carbohydrate
2: that is a really interesting question so in all of the insect models and the animal models that have been looked at the ratio of protein to carbohydrate that is optimum for lifespan is one in ten. Now one of the things that we realized re- recently is that that's exactly the same as the ratio of protein to carbohydrates eaten by a very special population of people called the Okinawans. In a small island off Japan, There is a, the island of Okinawan, there is a population of people that are the longest living people in the world, the Okinawans. They have five or more times as many centenarians than any other population in the world. So there's been great interest in looking at what it is about their lifestyles or their genes that makes them live longer. They have a protein-to-carbohydrate ratio that is exactly the same as what we see in animals to maximise lifespan, the ratio of 1 to 10 of protein-to-carbohydrates, and we've called that the Okinawan ratio. Will there be a cookbook? There will not be a cookbook. <laughs> but I think it's, what is important is that there is science to base nutritional recommendations upon rather than fashion and clearly there is a huge market for cookbooks and there's a huge market and interest in nutritional interventions to try and improve lifespan. What we're trying to do is to generate a, a genuine science upon which we can base these nutritional recommendations. It's a complicated area. One of the things that we've found in reviews that we've done is much of the research that is used to justify dietary recommendations is often funded by industry or by people with conflicts of interest. That doesn't mean the research is wrong but it does mean that we have to be a little bit cautious about some of the recommendations. I think one of the important things that came out of the Australian Biology of Ageing conference was a firm restatement that ageing is now a genuine target for therapeutic interventions. We now know that by altering diet, by altering genes or by a variety of different drugs we can manipulate ageing and this really is the future of medicine. In the past we've tried to make people healthier by treating each of the individual diseases or trying to prevent them. And that just generates a huge medical load or therapeutic load upon people, particularly as they get older. What's becoming clearer now is that if we can delay ageing, we can actually prevent or delay the onset of a whole lot of age-related diseases with a single intervention. And that's probably the highlight and the take-home message from the ABAC conference.
0: The FDA recently had to accept ageing as a disease to be able to allow there to be treatments
2: for it. The FDA regulates the reasons that a drug can be marketed rather than the reason that people use medications. But you're right, there is a push by people interested in ageing medications to try and ensure that the clinical trials that are done for drugs that delay ageing to be consistent with FDA requirements. The first of those drugs is now being dealt with by the FDA and by clinical trialists, and it's a drug that's well known to many people. It's a diabetic drug called metformin metformin has been used for decades for the treatment of diabetes one of the things that we've discovered recently is that metformin acts on one of those pathways that links diet with aging both caloric restriction and low protein high carbohydrate diets so we can take a drug that might mimic some of the beneficial effects of nutrition so there is a big push now to do a clinical trial with metformin to see whether it delays a variety of things that go wrong with aging
0: is there the same need for a change in the way that medicine is regulated in Australia, that there needed to be in for America with the FDA?
2: I think there's a lot of concordance between the regulatory bodies across the North America and Australia and Europe. The FDA leads the way in some areas and the other regulatory bodies in other areas. Um, but I, I see that it's highly likely that over the next decade or two, the regulatory bodies will come to terms with how we assess the efficacy and the safety of medications that are used to treat aging as a therapeutic target rather than treating diseases of aging so that is, that's an important barrier it's an important goal for aging research to go further
0: if people want to find out about your work can they find more online
2: nearly all of the re- our research on nutrition and aging is available online through the articles that were published through free access we also have a webpage, the AAAI, so that's aai.com.au, I think, and CIRA, we also have webpages, but that's for our organisations at Concord Hospital. I think if people are interested in ageing, they probably should look up Steve Simpson and Charles Perkins Centre online, and that would probably connect them to a lot of the research that's being done here. If people are particularly concerned that that, that ageing
0: research doesn't get enough support, is there anything they can do to increase support to your sort of research?
2: There's certainly a growing interest in ageing research. In the past, ageing as a therapeutic target has been sort of a focus of snake oil merchants and not being considered to be a serious science. But in the last 20 years, that's changed substantially, and ageing research has gone from being an orphan to being at the forefront of biomedical research. So we'd certainly support any research that's done into... Both how can we delay ageing, but also how can we manage older people better? Older people carry the burden of disease in our communities, and we really don't know how to manage all of their illnesses and disabilities and symptoms. So both of those areas warrant research, because that's where most of the suffering, disease and disability is, and that's where the most gains are going to be.
0: One last question. If somebody in school wanted to know what to study to head into your sort of career, what would they need to do?
2: One of my senior colleagues who's worked in the field of metabolic disease and diabetes was asked what career would he suggest to junior scientists and he recommends always aging because that is the goal field of biomedical research for the future. That's where the discoveries are being made and that's where the real contributions to mankind can be made. If we can crack the nut of aging, if we can work out how to delay aging in a way that will benefit the whole population then we'll have a huge impact on the health of the population. People ask about the ethical issues of keeping people older longer. We're not really in the, in the field of wanting to do that. But if we can keep someone at the age of 65 productive for the next 10 years, we're having huge economic benefits for society as well, as well as reducing the health costs of people getting older. Most of the research that's being done targets what's called health span, which is a period of healthy lifespan, rather than the aim of keeping people alive for longer, particularly if they're disabled and frail.
0: Well, David, thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much.
0: That was Professor David Lacuta from the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney, talking about diet and ageing. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Check out the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Check out the Patreon page at patreon.com slash Radio. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, and 3 MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science 360 internet radio station, and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then explore more than 700 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the slightly delayed episodes on the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
1: Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate.